0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
1: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter-revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent Royal Hundred Course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. The Feast is brought to you this week by Studio Sweden, makers of premium headphones with studio quality sound. With classic Scandinavian design and state of the art Bluetooth technology, Studio has dedicated itself to not only a great piece of technology, but something pretty stylish. Something you'll actually be proud to wear while you're riding the subway, jogging on the street, or wherever. And right now, Studio is offering a special 15% discount for Feast listeners. Just go to their website, www.sudiosweden.com, and enter the promo code FEAST17 at checkout. Remember, the offer code is FEAST17 for a 15% discount at studiosweden.com. And we've just got one more quick thing before we get to today's show. I wanted to share with you the results of our listener reward survey that we held back in September. We loved hearing from you and we're taking your recommendations on board to make the feast better for all our lovely listeners. And as it turns out, what you want most are historical recipes, which is awesome. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to send the first 10 people who sign up to our monthly newsletter, five historical recipes for free. That's right. All you have to do is enter your email address and you'll be subscribed not only to our great newsletter, but we're also going to go trawling through the annals and send our five top picks for great historical eats straight to your inbox. Not sure how to sign up? It's pretty easy. All you have to do is go to our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org And click the link on the bottom left of the page that says, obviously, sign up for our newsletter. Couldn't be simpler. And if you still can't find it, you can always just send us an email at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org telling us you want to sign up. Remember, this five free recipe bundle is only good for the first 10 people who sign up, so don't delay. Okay, so that's the first thing. I hope you're all heading to the website now to get those free recipes. But we've got even more for our very loyal listeners. We depend on our supporters from Patreon and on our donate page to keep the feast up and running. We love doing this show, but website costs and recording technology do have a tendency of adding up. We need your help to keep the feast going, but we want to make sure you're getting the content you want. Which brings us to our second listener reward offer. On the survey, you told us you'd be willing to donate to the feast if you could request an episode on a topic you were interested in. And we heard you loud and clear. So get ready. The first five people who sign up to be monthly contributors at the $5 or more level on Patreon will get the opportunity to request an episode on their favorite historical meal. Want to know more about Marie Antoinette's obsession with cake? How about Julius Caesar's last meal? Maybe even what they were serving the night the Titanic sank? All have been great episode suggestions. And now, you too have the opportunity to get an entire Feast episode on a meal you want to learn more about. Just head to patreon.com slash feastpodcast and pledge at the $5 or more level per month. We'll send you an email asking what you want to hear on a Feast episode. Remember... Only the first five people who sign up as supporters on Patreon will get to request an episode. So head on over to Patreon and sign up today. Okay, that's all the housekeeping for now. Remember, five free historical recipes when you sign up for our newsletter, and an entire feast episode on your favorite historical meal when you pledge to be a monthly donor. Easy as pie. Mmm, pie. Okay, on to today's episode. If you ever find yourself in Cincinnati, Ohio, do me a favor. Starting in the downtown, take a walk southeast, past the Jack Cincinnati Casino in the Greyhound Bus Station, along the large street known as Eggleston Avenue. Today, it's a massive four-lane divided road. Even though it goes right down to the banks of the Ohio River, it's not exactly peaceful surrounded on all sides by the massive Interstate 71 that brings commuters in and out of the heart of the city. But if you do ever happen to find yourself there, and you look just a little northeast, you might be able to see a massive hill on the other side of the highway. You can probably just make out a series of what look like Victorian-era homes. Now the hill that you're looking at is a neighborhood that the locals call Mount Adams. It's a pretty neighborhood too, with a great view of the river, and located just south of a great big green space known as Eden Park. Now, if you can ignore the sounds of that highway, imagine yourself back about 150 years, right around the early 1880s. Now, at that point, Eggleston Avenue would have still been here, as would have Eden Park and that Mount Adams neighborhood I told you about. But instead of being locked away beyond those tons of cement in the U.S. highway system, imagine instead a giant funicular being here. A veritable steampunk fantasy that could whisk you away from here on Eggleston Avenue, up that great big hill on a cable car, right to the top of Mount Adams. And then, should you want to, it would take you even further upwards to the very heights at Eden Park. Now, if you were to go to Eggleston Avenue on a very specific day, say a hot summer's day like July 11th in the year 1883, you may have been able to see a large group of people decked out in their finest, making their way from Plum Street, right in the heart of downtown Cincinnati, right over to Eggleston, and then up the Mount Adams funicular. Up to the very top of Mount Adams, to a beautiful hotel and restaurant known, appropriately enough, as the Highland House. And back in 1883 in Cincinnati, if you were having a special banquet, maybe a wedding reception, maybe a graduation party, you couldn't do better than the Highland House. Of course, the Highland House is long gone now, closed not long after the funicular itself was torn down in order to make room for more houses and, of course, the eventual freeway, People didn't need funiculars when they could whiz by at 60 miles an hour. But it was here, at the top of this hill, at that closed-up resort, where the future of religion in America, specifically the future of Judaism in America, changed forever. All because of one meal. A meal that is often known as the Trefa Banquet. Now, to understand how a single meal can shift the winds of religion, we're going to have to go back a bit to figure out exactly why that meal on July 11th in 1883 was so important, why it was in Cincinnati, and how something that had started as a celebratory dinner, a meal to unite the Jewish communities of America, had turned into something that would eventually permanently divide them. Now, in the 1870s and 1880s, a new movement had emerged, based right here in Cincinnati, that had sought to unite the many Jewish communities across America. Founded by one rabbi, Isaac Mayer Wise, he had called it the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. The key word there being union. Rabbi Wise had wanted to smooth over the differences between the congregations, symbolizing a new, united Judaism in a new country, America. But to do this, he needed rabbis. Rabbis not trained in the old ways of Europe, but ones that could represent this new age, this new world. And so, in the 1870s, the Hebrew Union College was founded, with a goal of producing American rabbis for American congregations. And by July of 1883, Rabbi Wise's dream had seemingly come true. Four rabbis, the first ever of the Hebrew Union College, were ordained in Rabbi Wise's downtown Plum Street Temple. The first truly American rabbis ever. Well, such a moment deserved a momentous celebration. And Rabbi Wise was not one to pass up such an opportunity.
0: This is very significant because it means that finally America is producing its own rabbis. It will not have to rely on imported rabbis. And at the same time, they were celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, as it was called, the body that brought synagogues together. My name is Jonathan Sarna, and uh, I'm university professor, as well as Joseph H. and Bella Broad Professor of American Jewish History, uh, and chair of the Hornstein Jewish Professional Leadership Program all at Brandeis University, and I'm chief historian of the National Museum of American Jewish History.
1: The ordination of the first rabbis from Hebrew Union College was a national news event for the congregations of America, and Rabbi Wise knew he could expect a large crowd on July the 11th. And what better opportunity could there have been to have a banquet where Jewish leaders could sit together and enjoy a meal, talk shop, and celebrate the future of a united American Judaism?
0: They drew a uh, large group uh, and diverse group of rabbis to Cincinnati, some of them Orthodox, some of them Reformed, some of them somewhere in between. And the goal was to show what united everybody and to be a celebration.
1: And at least at the start, it certainly was. The ordination of the four rabbis on July the 11th at the Plum Street Temple Was a magnificent affair. Speeches and music, a local choir performed, and the temple was packed with guests from out of town, just as Rabbi Wise had predicted. After the speeches, music, and the ceremony itself, the festivities for this ordination continued as the rabbis and their other distinguished guests made their way by cable car down Plum Street, over Eggleston Avenue, and up the funicular to the Highland House. There, a massive banquet had been arranged. In honor of the ordination, of course, but it was also a chance for the many leaders who had come to Cincinnati to witness the occasion to sit and chat. In total, 215 people sat down to dinner. And the mood was festive. Everyone all agreed it had been a lovely afternoon, and now that they were at the Highland House, surely the good mood was bound to continue with a fine meal. But that's when things went wrong. Someone must have noticed something when the first course, raw little neck clams arrived. But nothing was said. Then there was the soft-shelled crab, the shrimp salad with mayonnaise, sweetbreads, frog's legs, and cream sauce. Out of the 215 guests, it's not quite certain who remarked upon the unusual menu. After all, a Jewish caterer, the Cincinnati businessman Gus Lindemann, had been commissioned to plan and execute the whole thing. And by many accounts, some people had a fine time at the nine-course meal, enjoying the fine wine and decadent food, celebrating what many believed was a high point in Jewish congregational unity in the United States. And certainly, most of the guests stayed until the final dish was served— sometime around midnight, and the speeches and toasts began. Toasting the country, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, and the unifying spirit that had brought about the first rabbis to be ordained in the United States. But the die was cast.
0: Uh, All the goodwill that was generated by uh, the ordination was dissipated when they had a nine-course banquet that uh, included all sorts of biblically forbidden, we would say, non-kosher food and uh, also mixed meat and milk in violation of the Jewish dietary codes, And obviously the more traditional rabbis in attendance felt excluded by this event.
1: But what had gone so wrong? Rabbi Wise had organized the ordination and banquet. A Jewish caterer had been in charge of the entire menu. How had so many items prohibited by Jewish dietary codes snuck onto the menu?
0: What is so interesting when one reads the menu... Of the banquet in 1883 is that even though it violates uh, the Jewish dietary laws in multiple ways, it studiously avoids serving any pork products. In Cincinnati, a lot of Jews thought that it was sufficient to distinguish them from their neighbors simply by not eating pork Products And remember, Cincinnati was a huge quark. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
1: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
0: City was often known as Porkopolis. Uh, because so many were slaughtered there. And a lot of Jews seemed to feel that the, the dividing line, the boundary between Jews and Christians was simply, do you eat pork or don't you eat pork? Those folks seemed to think that there's nothing wrong. We didn't serve pork and didn't understand how offensive the meal would be to Jews coming from the East Coast uh, who, who kept the dietary laws strictly.
1: The banquet, with its frog legs, clams, and crabs, would set in motion events that would see the formation of the major divisions in American Judaism still around today. And we'll find out how after the break. The feast is brought to you by Studio Sweden, makers of stylish, high quality headphones. These folks love music so much, they named their entire company after a Phil Collins song. But they also love the people who make and listen to music. So for the month of October, Studio Sweden is donating 10% of their profits from their pink headphones to the Pink Ribbon Foundation, an organization dedicated to raising awareness of breast cancer all over the world. There is no better time to grab a pair of these awesome headphones. So head on over to studiosweden.com and enter the offer code FEAST17 to grab your pair of pink headphones to show off your commitment to great audio, but more importantly, your commitment to end breast cancer. That's FEAST17 at studiosweden.com for a 15% discount off your order. Remember... The campaign only lasts until the end of October, so don't wait to grab your next great pair of headphones. The Feast is also brought to you today by Care Of, a new kind of vitamin company. Care Of makes it easy for you to commit to your nutritional goals. Their comprehensive website gives you all the facts you need to build a personalized daily vitamin pack that is shipped right to your door. The folks at Care Of are passionate about quality ingredients and information. Through their website, you can research the latest findings on all the vitamins and supplements they offer. And you can tailor your personalized pack to suit your lifestyle. Do you want packs every week? Every month? Care Of's easy-to-use website makes it simple to order and more than easy to reschedule deliveries if you're heading out of town or want to change things up a bit. Visit TakeCareOf.com today and answer a few easy questions about your goals and lifestyle. And you can have your first personalized vitamin pack ordered within minutes. It's that easy. And for Feast listeners, if you enter the offer code FEAST at checkout, you'll receive 50% off, that's half off, your first month's order. Get started today by visiting www.TakeCareOf.com and entering the offer code Feast at checkout for that 50% discount. So, back to the Trefa banquet, a meal that had been designed to show the united world of American Judaism. Rabbi Weiss's plan to invite the leaders of congregations throughout America had been great in theory, but turned out to have been a disaster in execution. The rabbis affronted by the non-kosher dinner returned to their congregations with horror stories about how Jews lived and ate in Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: The worst thing, I think, was that instead of apologizing for a mistake and laying the blame at the lay leaders uh, and the caterer who seemed to have made the mistake, Uh, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise of Cincinnati decided to take the offense. He made fun of people who thought only about kitchen Judaism and insisted that the dietary laws had lost their validity. And in doing all of that, he really undermined the unity.
1: And it wasn't all hearsay thanks to the growing society pages in local newspapers, which had taken to printing full menus of lavish local banquets. Any subscriber to the Cincinnati Inquirer could read what had been served at the now infamous Highland House dinner, what was increasingly being called now the Highland House Affair. Jews from all over the country, including Rabbi Wise, wrote to newspapers to attack or defend what Rabbi Wise had called Kitchen Judaism.
0: I think it would take some research to know if anybody used the term kitchen Judaism before 1883. Certainly this event and the subsequent debate made the term unknown, and the opponents of the dietary laws uh, really now attacked them. And made fun of kitchen Judaism, and of course, those on the other side defended them.
1: Ultimately, the Highland House affair prompted, or maybe even revealed, the opposite of the nationally unified Judaism Rabbi Wise was hoping for. While Jews living in Cincinnati largely had chosen simply to avoid pork as part of kosher law, entire food industries, particularly in eastern communities like New York, had grown up around a much stricter definition of kosher. And thanks to these new society pages and newspapers, we can now compare banquet menus from these areas at the time. To what extent different Jewish communities across the U.S. elected to keep kosher, or not?
0: You can really see geographic differences uh, between what is acceptable Jewish behavior in 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 and and what was acceptable in Cincinnati was not acceptable in New York and of course across American religion uh, there were vast geographic differences uh, what it meant to be a catholic in Boston was not the same as what it meant to be a catholic in New Orleans and in Judaism too in the 19th century and still today uh, there are important regional and geographic differences between the practice of Judaism uh, in different communities.
1: And the Trefa Banquet, what many had taken to calling the meal that had served Trefe or non-kosher food, had illustrated these regional differences. But now it became a matter of national debate. What role should these ancient dietary laws have in 19th century American Jewish life? Were you to be a traditionalist, holding on to these ancient kosher laws? Or were you to be a reformer, adhering to only a select few, maybe even none at all? The debate between traditionalists
0: and reformers really grows in the wake of the, the banquet. And instead of believing that all Jews would unite in a union, uh, what we instead see is that reform-minded rabbis decide that they are going to get together and define clearly a set of principles for reform Judaism that will clearly distinguish, in the eyes of the public, Reform Judaism from conservative orthodox. They often used those words in those days, not today, but in those days, as synonyms that distinguished liberal reform from conservative
1: orthodox. Less than two years after the Trefa Banquet, a group of rabbis, including Rabbi Isaac Wise, gathered in Pittsburgh to define the kind of Judaism they believed was relevant for 19th-century American life. The document they produced which was eventually known as the Pittsburgh Platform, would lay the foundations for reform Judaism in America for the next two centuries.
0: One of the things that they make clear is they accept as binding only the moral laws and maintain only such ceremonies as elevate and sanctify our lives, but reject all such as are not adapted to the views and habits of modern civilization, and they specifically say that laws regulating diet and related matters are foreign to our mental and spiritual state uh, in the present.
1: This line in the sand not only helped to solidify what was increasingly known as Reformed Judaism, it also prompted those who adhered to a more traditional or conservative interpretation of dietary laws to form not only their own definition of beliefs, but their own institutions such as seminaries and synagogues. And as far as the Hebrew Union College, the birthplace of this entire affair, it now became the home for rabbis trained in Reform Judaism exclusively. And thanks to Cincinnati's location on the Ohio River, rabbis trained here soon were traveling west to preach the Reform version of Judaism to new communities in the western United States.
0: In terms of Reformed Judaism, it's very important because those students would fan out and serve congregations throughout the South and West. One of the reasons Reformed Judaism became so strong uh, in the Midwest and the South was precisely because Hebrew Union College was there, they provided the rabbis, and the rabbis brought those students synagogues uh, within the orbit of the fast-growing reform movement.
1: Of course, Reform Judaism would come to mean much more than just whether or not someone kept kosher. As time went on, particularly into the 20th century, more and more issues arose that illustrated the diversity of beliefs and opinions within the Jewish community. The Pittsburgh platform was modified several times over the coming years to keep up with changing attitudes about the role of moral and ritual law within Reform Judaism.
0: And one can really trace how the beliefs of the Reform movement have changed. Some with regard to matters of ideology, like Zionism, and others with regard to ritual practices like foodways and the consumption of non-kosher food. And today, uh, the reform movement views those matters very, very differently than uh, the the rabbis who gathered in Pittsburgh did uh, in the mid-1880s.
1: Beginning with the Pittsburgh platform, the Hebrew Union College has continued to train rabbis within the reform tradition and it's still there in Cincinnati today. The Union of American Hebrew Congregations has continued as well, but it was eventually renamed as the Union for Reform Judaism to reflect its new associations. Today, there are an estimated 2 million Jews in America that identify as Reform, about 35% of the total U.S. Jewish population, the largest denomination by far in the country. And with that denomination comes an incredibly broad spectrum of belief and practice.
0: It becomes more acceptable to view a religious movement as a big tent movement. Uh, There are many ways of being a Reformed Jew, and we embrace them all. Uh, that would be said today, and that one is tolerant and and accepting of a wide variety of divergent views is much more characteristic of Reformed Judaism and of a lot of religious movements in 2017 uh, than it was back in 1885, when some people really deeply wanted to have a set of principles that would determine whether you're in or out.
1: So next time you find yourself in Cincinnati, take a walk up to Mount Adams, enjoy the view of that Ohio River, and think about how a single meal here, over a hundred years ago, helped to shape the religious lives of over two million people today. Those are some pretty powerful frog's legs. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, technical direction by Mike Port, with editorial help from Lynn Provenche. A huge thank you to Dr. Jonathan Sarna from Barandise University, who took the time to talk with us this week. He literally wrote the book on American Judaism. Seriously, it's called American Judaism, A History. It's won basically every award it can, so I can't recommend it enough. We'll have a link to it and other information from Dr. Sarna on our website. We also have to thank Rabbi Lance Sussman, who has done incredible work on the history and significance of the Trefa Banquet. His article on it is amazing. Seriously, go read it. We'll put a link to it on our show notes, along with the actual banquet menu from 1883, so you can read all about the frog's legs, clams, and soft-shelled crabs for yourself. Music this week by Jazar and Andy Cohen. And remember, if you would like those free five historical recipes or your very own feast episode on content you requested, visit our website at thefeastpodcast.org to sign up to our newsletter or to become a monthly supporter on Patreon. And you're not going to want to miss our next episode, a very spooky special edition of The Feast just in time for Halloween. All I'm going to say is that it gets medieval. That's next time on The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire... A revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.